0: This episode of the Missions Podcast is sponsored by the Global Gospel Fund. You know, here on the show we're driven by the conviction that eternity matters, time is short, and missionaries should be free to do the work that God has called them to do. Unfortunately, too many missionaries lose precious man hours managing the logistics of moving overseas, navigating visa structures, figuring out how to educate their kids, finding insurance, and more. And people who try to go it alone in missions without an agency don't usually realize how intense some of this work can be until it's too late. The Global Gospel Fund has a solution. Each gift to the Global Gospel Fund allows ABWE to serve more than a thousand missionaries with vital ministry-shaping resources, leadership, planning, care, and counseling by a team of more than 70 experts at our headquarters who know them by name, are praying for them, and are cheering them on. If you're burdened for missions this giving season but aren't sure how to best invest, the Global Gospel Fund is a great way to bless gospel-focused missionaries doing real evangelism, real church planting, and real compassion work across 70 countries become a Global Gospel Fund partner today at abwe.org/globalgospelfund and enjoy today's show. Welcome to the missions podcast the show that explores your hard questions on missions theology and practice to help goers think and thinkers go i'm alex Kochman, director of advancement and mobilization here with scott dunford vice president of mobilization and communication for abwe international and scott i'm excited today for a topic that we're going to dive into with someone who's been an influence i know in your life and helpful for you specifically at midwestern and in your studies there in the doctoral program but one of the things that gets me excited as we talk about missions and theology and dive into another awesome interview and conversation is that, you know, Christians are always using the term worldview. Right. We're, oh, yeah. We're talking about the significance of Christian worldview. And, you know, there's worldview education. There's worldview camps. <laughs> it's it's become a, a term that almost has, has lost some of its significance because maybe we overuse the concept. Right.
1: Oh, sure. And it's very confusing as, as how people use it in different ways. And so it's important for us to kind of get down to what is a worldview and how can it be changed or transformed by the gospel?
0: Needs to be changed. And I remembered when I first came here to work here uh, with you at AB. BWE that you put a book on my desk um, that uh, impacted me, I think, Transforming Worldviews by the now late Dr. Paul Hebert. And that's a book that has been significant uh, influence for you, too. You've read it how many times? At least twice. At least twice. Yeah.
1: Yeah, very, very important book. And I think all of his works are important. And that's why we brought in the guests we have now to talk about this topic of worldview. And so I want to introduce to you, uh, to all of our guests, uh, one of my professors. Um, that's a little intimidating for me, although I think my grades are all turned in in his classes. Um, but uh, Dr. John Mark Yates is the dean of students at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, and of Spurgeon College, the undergraduate school of Midwestern, and he is also the Associate Professor of Church History. Um, He holds his PhD in Church History from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where he sat under Paul Hebert. Uh, He also studied at Southern and Oxford and Criswell College, so he's kind of been around, experienced a lot of things, but he really thinks deeply about this topic of worldview and culture. And so, Dr. Yates, really glad to have you on the show today.
2: Man, it's so good to join you guys for this. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, I am as well. Um, I enjoyed our
1: conversations in class, which was uh, mostly uh, hearing you talk about this topic and us just kind of interacting on that level, but excited to kind of dive into this a little bit more. Before we begin the conversation about Are getting extra credit view, for your class
0: by doing this? I or? wish I
1: could go back and get <laughs> that, but I think it's all done. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's probably why I waited, because uh, if this went badly, then I don't want that distracting. That's uh, true. <laughs> but uh, if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself. You're <laughs> all <girl> turned in. About <laughs> yourself, your family, uh, your love for soccer or whatever else you want to share with us. And then uh, we have a few questions for you about, about culture and worldview. Soccer.
2: Absolutely. So, uh, I, I, again, as you mentioned already, I serve at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I uh, believed that God called me to academic ministry um, and, uh, and really serving the church uh, through academics, even as a high schooler. So I was one of those uh, nerdy kids, uh, even all the way back then. And uh, through encouragement of my very missions-oriented parents, my dad was a church planter. They strongly encouraged me to gain global experiences at every step of the way. So everything from graduating from high school and spent eight weeks overseas uh, in Eastern Europe, which that was the summer of 91. So actually, was one of the first uh, Americans to drive mm. uh, into Albania when wow. it opened up. Well, all the way through spending my junior year of university at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, uh, studying Jewish history and uh, in archaeology, studying at Oxford. Uh, I used to work for Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, and was in charge of uh, leaving students to go overseas uh, to take uh, study tours, basically. So we would wrap uh, a specific course within a context that would put us in an overseas venue which then we would leverage that as an opportunity for mission engagement so whether we were in North Africa looking at the rich history of Christianity there which many people don't even know about mm. uh, that that live there and uh, being able to when they ask why are you here we talk about Christianity and they say Christianity doesn't exist here and we say oh Man, this is a vibrant center of Christianity. And uh, they're like, well, tell us more. And so we wow. get a chance to share the gospel uh, <laughs> with them uh, in, a, in a country that's relatively closed. So these are all things that I've uh, enjoyed doing while serving churches and training students. Uh, I'm married. I have four kids. Two are in high school. Two are in middle school. And yeah, just getting to serve the church and helping encourage people to follow the Lord and and adhere to his word and continue to uh, become more and more
1: like Christ. So I think our topic today is relevant, whether you're serving in a church in Harrisburg or Kansas City, um, or whether you're serving around the world. And that is this co- this question of, of worldview. And we're going to get to that in a second, but I want to step back just for a second and, and talk to you about, you just get your thoughts on Paul Hebert. So he's, he's a writer that's influenced us a lot um, in our thinking about missions, but maybe a lot of people haven't heard of him. He hasn't written a lot of popular level books. Yeah. Um, and so so you studied under him um, and knew him at Trinity, when he was still alive, can you just tell us a little bit about him and why his works are important and why the average Christian should care about uh, the works of Dr. Hebert.
2: Yeah. Hebert uh, was a fascinating, fascinating man. And uh very, Gentle, uh, just one of those individuals that you, when you spend time with him, he, this is someone who reflects Christ, and that that's always something you love to see in your faculty. Um, and Hebert grew, grew, grew up on the mission field himself, so he had firsthand, uh, visible, uh, maybe we call it tactile knowledge of uh, what uh, missions actually was. He, he did it in India uh, uh, under uh, his parents, and, and and one of the things that that encouraged him to do was to study anthropology. And oftentimes we think of missions from a theological standpoint, which is right and it's good. But where Hebert really helped was that he took research within the field of anthropology and applied it effectively to missiology and helped encourage uh, what is now a very growing field that takes uh, anthropological concepts and ideas and then helps us evaluate some of our missiological methods and that hmm. actually was what was behind his transforming worldviews uh book um he taught at fuller he taught at ted's uh the trinity evangelical uh, he, he was just an amazing amazingly gifted man and a gifted thinker Uh, but the thing i loved about him most is that his life really reflected uh the truths of uh, christ and he was an encouragement to students um continually Uh, most of my contact came from him not from directly in class but from our cohorts that we had in our phd program at ted's where he would uh frequently come in and and we would talk through uh different missiological concepts and how they related to the different disciplines so it was always a treat any time that he was was there and encouraging all of us in our doctoral program to think through these ideas.
0: Well, one of the things that uh, Hebert does early in that particular book is define what a worldview is. That seems like an obvious question, right? Well, it's a view of the world, but he goes deeper than that. I'd love to have you speak to that a little bit. Exactly what a worldview is, but before you do that, too, I just want to drill a little bit deeper on something that you mentioned that we usually think of missions theologically, and we also need to think of it anthrop- anthropologically. But it, you know, to, to to play devil's advocate, right? Hmm. Scripture is sufficient. You know, uh, Scripture gives us everything that we need, you know, so that the man of God would be equipped for every good work, right? Second Timothy three 17. So what is, is there a biblical basis for also saying, let's bring in some of these other disciplines, not that scripture is insufficient, but that, uh, that there is a way that that can help us understand some of these other cultures. How would you unpack that briefly?
2: Absolutely. We, we should be looking at it in terms of how I'm stocking my toolbox. Hmm. So, yes, Scripture is absolutely sufficient for everything that that we uh, can do or understand or know. That's that's more than sufficient. And missions history shows that over and over again. People armed with faith and reliance in the Word of God making huge impacts uh, on a global scale uh, as they acted in faith with boldness uh, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. What we find is that long-term effectiveness often then is also deploying specific tools uh, that that we would utilize to help us create better, longer lasting frameworks and sometimes that may be um, utilizing some tools relating to business or maybe that would be something that we could uh, think through the tool uh, using in my own discipline in history Uh, using some of the tools of uh, of the broader historical guild to be able to get at a better analysis of what was going on, never getting rid of the spiritual or the truth of what God is doing or or even sidelining that, but to look at some of the deeper context that maybe we never thought about. And how could we have learned from that a little bit more And anthropology for Dr. Hebert was that particular tool that, enabled us to look in different ways at what's happening to create better patterns so that we could understand individuals and communities and the way that they understand and grapple with ideas of truth or ideas relating to who God is. So that missionaries and theologians or ministers can come through and say, okay, after listening to this, I now know that I need to be able to, as Paul talked about, be all things to all men, so that I might win some. I now have a better understanding of how this community or this person um, might be thinking, therefore, I can engage them more effectively with the truth of God's word.
0: That's really helpful, and uh, especially just in understanding that all truth belongs to God. Jesus is Lord of every discipline, right? So we need to avail ourselves of all of those in the service of Scripture, but we need to also retake anthropology away from evolutionists who are studying you know, natives as though they're subhuman, right? As we go back in history and see sometimes what's happened there, but that it's still useful information now as we look at those patterns that you're talking about. So getting back to that other question, what is a worldview? How, how do you define, and maybe how does Hebert define what a worldview is.
2: Right. So for us, I mean, the, the simple explanation is how you see the world, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we can, we can joke about that, but that, that is a, a, the simplest explanation sometimes is the best. And so it's, it's the lens by which we view the world. And, and Hebert is um, helpful in this in that he says there's a communal aspect to this uh, as well. Um, his formal definition is, is a little more technical, and this is what he says uh, about a worldview. He defines it as, quote, the foundational, cognitive, affective, and evaluative assumptions and frameworks a group of people makes a bit about the nature of reality which they use to order their lives. So for him it's it's this grid by which individuals make an understanding of life. Hmm. And what I love about Hebert's definition is it bypasses the individual. So many times in yeah. evangelicalism because we're so individualistic mm-hmm. we think through things as individuals. So how can I shape a person's worldview? How can I in student ministry Mm -hmm. shape a student's worldview so that they see uh, the truth of Christ and they they submit to the authority of the Word of God? We think in individual terms. Hebert wants to make sure that we understand that when you look at things from an anthropological standpoint, there is that role of the individual. But for lasting worldview change, there has to be an understanding of communal as well. This, to me, is one of the more amazing pictures that uh, Hebert really brings out. And for any of us who think about the idea of worldview, that it cannot be left just to an individual. It's best when it's understood as a communal uh, Uh engagement. And I love this. When we look in the book of Acts, we do see individuals coming to faith, but we also see families coming to faith in Uh Christ. We see sections of a community coming to faith in Christ. Oh, and by the way, God's plan since the foundation of the world has been the church. It's community operating together under the authority of Jesus Christ that we see a long term shaping uh, of our life. It's almost as if God designed that on purpose. Uh
0: Preach. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and threw me off, Alex. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it threw me back to my growing up days in revivalism. <laughs> uh-huh.
0: One thing I like about that definition, not only it has the communal element, but it has the effective element mm, to it. Affective yes. with an A, yeah. not effective with an E, meaning that it's not just that we're not brains on a stick. It's not just your ideas about the world. It's that visceral gut level values. What? Do you, how do you feel about the world you live in, too? So I think that's helpful.
1: Yeah. And I think it's the way you described it there, and I and, and dealing with Hebert is is really informative because we often talk about, um, or you hear talk, people talk about, of, of the individual person's worldview and realizing, no, we're it's bigger than that. It's, it's we're not talking about some way someone is thinking about a problem. It's really about a whole system of the way they view the world that can be very different from one culture to another culture.
2: Yeah, very very different. And and so when we define this for uh, people who maybe are around us or we're, we're thinking about. Uh, taking a uh, a group from our church overseas, and, and we're going to do a short-term mission trip. One of the things that if we're doing this well, we're going to equip our people who are going with some basics of maybe some of the socio-religious realities that individuals are going to be a part of in that culture that we're going to. That's part of understanding the grid uh, the mental map that the people we're working with are functioning from. A lot of times we'll talk about uh, what are some uh, even recent tragedies uh, that they've experienced that still shapes the way that people yeah. think uh, about ideas. I was in Ecuador over the summer, and they had some major earthquakes a few years ago. And the the pastors in in Ecuador were saying this is something that people still talk about as if it happened yesterday. So when we have conversations about this, they're going to have questions about, uh, is God good? And so when we we have these these conversations, we have to understand that this is part of now their mental map of how they understand reality, and we want to make sure that we're addressing those. What other
1: kind of things shape a worldview? You mentioned different tragedies that take place. Um, what are the other things that that help shape a worldview of a culture or society?
2: Yeah, so it depends on which level we're looking at. And Again, this is this is where this conversation always gets a little more complex. We could talk about, say, American culture, and we could say, okay, the American worldview values freedom, and it about it values autonomy mm-hmm. of the individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, it values um, uh, <laughs> we have, we have a, a value of, of rooting for the underdog. We, we can talk mm-hmm. about some sure. broader extrapolations uh, on that on that level. But that wouldn't be enough. And I think we would understand that, that things that happen in, uh, if I drill down a little bit more, things that happen where I'm located in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, are those things, but there's even more. So there are things that shape conversations and ideas uh, within the, the context of what Missourians or Kansans think about uh, life. And uh, some of the long-standing historical presence of uh, in the part of the city where I live, a strong Catholicism that's existed for a long time or uh, in uh, different areas, we, we're seeing a, a changing uh, of, of uh, the community due to immigration where there are stronger and stronger pulls related to um, African religions as well as uh, Islamic thought. So that begins to shape then that broader conversation even more directly uh, over beyond. So when um, I I wrote a book in 2006 uh, that was designed as a a basic primer on worldviews for uh, high school and college students, and uh, I I outlined in there six fields where we kind of have to ask questions about what people think about uh, these issues so that we can actually have some better conversations, gospel conversations. And some of those things have to do with time. How do we see the progress Mm -hmm. of time? Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, not just what the watch that we wear on our wrist, but how do we actually see how we understand the unfolding of time? Is there a purpose? Is it, is it uh, chaotic? Is it uh, cyclical? Is it, you know, how do we, how do we understand that? How do we understand um, evil? How do we understand when things are wrong and and process those kinds of pieces? How do we understand uh, God and the concepts of God and and who he is? So we start wrestling with some of those those things and get at a little bit more of that affective heart uh, of where people are operating from, knowing full well that each individual's life experiences that may be shaped by socioeconomics, may be shaped by uh, family dynamics, may be shaped by uh, any number of things that uh, add an extra layer of com- complexity to that.
0: What would be an example of that? I mean, you, you mentioned time, you mentioned a couple other factors.
2: So um, I, I like to think about uh, this sometimes in terms of, uh, of socioeconomics. Hmm. So, Because, and one of the reasons why is because we see this play out in the Book of Acts, okay, or even in the Gospels. When when Jesus sees the rich young ruler, he says, "What about him?" Right? That it's it's easier for a camel Mm -hmm. uh, to go through the eye of a needle. Right? Mm We it's it's this this complex understanding that wealth in and of itself creates a sense of self-sufficiency that shapes your worldview so much so that you can't see the truth of God clearly, mm. uh, is at least an implication that one could draw from that. Uh, we see that even with Simon Magnus in the book of Acts, what does he try to do? He tries to use mm. his wealth to uh, to grab a hold of the power that he sees the apostles have. He wants to create this transactional thing so that it becomes uh, his as well as that he wants to use those things. He, because he comes from a, a position, maybe that even in the 21st century we might call privilege or extreme privilege, he sees the way that truth operates not fully because he's shielded by his own self sufficiency. Mm. The same thing can happen with poverty or. Uh, extreme lower ends of socioeconomics, where people can become blinded by their need, as well to where it's hard for them to perhaps understand that there is a free gift of salvation that they don't have to work for it. There's no nobody counting to make sure that they uh, do enough good works. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't resonate or sit well uh, with them because somehow they have to they have to make up for it because every type of thing that they've done, whether it's welfare systems or other pieces that required them to to show some sort of evidence that they're doing something uh, to continue to attain these uh, benefits. And so you talk about the goodness of the gospel and they want to work more for it. So these types of things, including socioeconomics, can begin to shape even on an individual level, but also even in pockets of our culture, how they understand the the goodness of God and the goodness of the gospel.
0: So you bring up a number of biblical examples there, and that that, that raises a good question about what we call sometimes the biblical worldview, uh, but it's interesting if you think, you know, just, just like uh, Hebrew writes in this book, he doesn't just say, well, here's an Islamic worldview, here's a Christian worldview here's a Hindu worldview it's it's more complicated than that there's Modernism, right. postmodernism, post-postmodernism, <laughs> which was a new one for me. Yeah. Um, you know, there was the the tribalist or animist um, mm. uh, traditional religion, spiritism, whatever term you want to use, their sort of worldview, and a, a number of others that are that are broader than that. And then when you think that you know the Bible's written by people over the course of fifteen hundred years in three different languages on three different continents, um, it it does sort of beg that question, which he kind of asks in the book too. You know, is there a biblical worldview? I think theologically we all want to say yes, but how do you grapple with that question? Is there a um, biblical worldview that's neat and clean cut? What does that look like? How do we apply some of that thinking to the text of scripture?
1: Is it just the same as an American worldview? Clearly, <laughs>
0: right. Yeah, of course. But that, that uh, a yeah. Que- you know. But that is it, a real thought. Is, uh, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah it, It's a it's a great question. And we've seen this even through missions history, uh, as you know, Adnah Judson or others were going into new areas, and they were wrestling with how much do I have to expect people to come to my own culture, uh, or do I really need to give that? How much? How much do I need to uh, you know acculturate this? And and we can maybe acculturate too far, so we, we want to hedge on that as well. So one of the things that I think very helpful that, uh, Hebert talks about is how, uh, centered set and bounded set um, mm. worldviews operate, which he paints those as kind of the, the two, two big categories. Center set, meaning that there is something that we're going to orient our lives around and bounded set, meaning that you have to cross a threshold by which you attain some sort of entrance into, uh, that, uh, that group or, or, or mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, Christianity ultimately, uh, on some levels we, we have to understand it as center set. It's centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, come follow me. Right. These are the, the things that we want to help people understand that it's all about following Jesus. However, we also understand that Christianity has some bounded set components as well that we cannot move beyond uh, the authority of the word of God, um, the understanding of God as triune. um, These pieces, and this is where, uh, not to necessarily throw in another name, but Al Mohler's theological triage comes into play in a very helpful way where we Mm -hmm. say there are some things that it, it doesn't matter how we want to uh, accommodate or acculturate, if you compromise on these particular things, you actually are no longer giving individuals Christianity. You're giving them something else. Mm. And that often is related to the person and character and nature of God, theology proper, uh, Christology proper, these things that the early church really wrestled with to make sure that they were uh, articulating as clearly and accurately as, as possible, uh, compromising on the very clear and plain teaching of the Word of God. So uh, do, are we as concerned if, if somebody holds to our millennial view uh on On the mission field, uh not really because that's not something that is one hundred percent clearly spelled out in scripture. Are we worried that someone is um to be uh, uh, missiologically, are we super worried that they're um you know not understanding our hymnal? Uh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> We're not worried about that uh we We want to see them come to know Jesus and center their life. Uh, and understanding of their life around the gospel. We do not want them, though, to become syncretic with that to where we acculturate so much um, that they then take pictures in the gospel and meld it with their own worldview uh, that's already existing. Jesus supplants any existing worldview. I, I think that's really helpful, especially as you draw out the difference
0: between a center bounded set and one that's more you know, demarcated with, with boundaries on the outside. Uh, because, yeah, we do have confessions of faith and we have standards for church membership. We have boundaries that we have to maintain. But, you know, as we, we as Westerners, we want to apply that very rigid, systematic thinking to everything. And that doesn't always fit well over scripture, which is, you know, ambiguous on some things uh, like certain aspects. Of, of eschatology that you mentioned and other things like that, and it's a it's a center bounded worldview. It's it's gravitationally centered on the person of Jesus Christ, not just well. If you want to be saved, you know, here sign at the at the bottom dotted line of this you know 1689 London Baptist Confession or something like that. Right. It's it's attraction to a person which also entails the whole worldview that flows out of that, which really leads into the, the title of his book, Transforming Worldviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about worldview. It's important to know the worldview of another person, especially in an evangelistic uh, encounter, so that I can anticipate some of their objections and I can, I can know what sort of static there is on the line as we're talking and, and speak past that and through that. Mm-hmm. But uh, anthropologically speaking do people change? Hmm. Biblically, we know they do, right? The new birth is a miracle. But psychologically, sociologically, uh, it seems really rare that people change. And we're called to go out into the world and change people. We're called to make disciples, right? That's a radical whole person change. So how can a worldview be transformed? Uh, What does that even look like?
2: So for Hebrew, it does begin with that orientation, right? How are we we moving in this this uh, direction? How are we orienting life uh, around um, really the person of Christ and his his things? And it's as we do this, this begins to take everything that we know and begin to shape that affective component, where it begins to show up in our behaviors and our uh, the way that we understand and begin to work out this worldview within our uh, life. The struggle with that is uh, oftentimes for those of us who've been believers or grew up in believing families, those expectations are are in, kind of inherent. It's, it looks like X, and we kind of have a picture in our mind that here's somebody who at least is acting Christianly. And the process of sanctification, though, is complex. And it takes time for many individuals. So while there is this amazingly redemptive um, moment in a gospel transformation, um, sanctification is a lifetime struggle. Mm. And so we often will see uh, individuals begin to work through this. And this is where, excuse me, Hebert's understanding of transforming of these worldviews is so important uh, because he is allowing us the space to understand that this takes time, that it actually takes community. It actually takes all of us working together to, uh, to try to move an individual towards, uh, and to keep them focused on, uh, the, the center of Jesus Christ. Mm. So, um, it's those relationships that enabled us, um, so when we start seeing this, then we we see this as, and what he calls, quite frankly, the fruit of the spirit. <laughs> and <laughs> no I concept. love the scriptural component uh, of pulling in the fruit of the spirit as showing that this is where this is working out. Again, shockingly, like God had an intent for this and uh, how we do this. But then we help write, help them understand their space and their um, their understanding of how uh, this works in our uh, cognitive framework and moving from um, maybe not clearly understanding, but coming to a place where we have a clear understanding of what the boundaries are. Again, it takes time, but mm-hmm. it's something that we would want to see begin to work out uh, in the mind as well as in the emotions and the things that we, uh, we hold to firmly and the way that we judge and evaluate things. And with that, on an individual sense, that begins to then work itself out perpetually within a community. So as they evangelize and disciple and train and evangelize, disciple and train, that process gets repeated over and over again.
1: So we see how, how worldviews can change. One of the questions I would have for you is a lot of times your worldview is kind of hidden to you, right? Because just the way things are, I don't question when the sun comes up in the morning, I don't, I don't question whether there's, um, you know, some, some great God behind the scenes that that's doing some kind of like, there's not a a turtle with a sun on his back that has to rise every morning. You know, um, we know that, you know, that the sun is in rotation or the earth is in rotation around the sun and, and all. We know that the Earth is flat. I'm just kidding. <laughs> things we just assume, right? <laughs> um, our worldview is just something that we just assume. We just make a lot of assumptions about yeah, a it. Yeah, so, fish doesn't know it's wet. So, for a missionary entering into another culture, um, I can ma- I know that it's it's especially tricky when, when the worldview that, that you just come from, you know, the postmodern, post-postmodern <laughs> American Western worldview that's influenced by a lot of things, including Christianity, and then a Christian worldview those things are easy to get confused. So how, how, what advice would you give to a a missionary um, or someone who's, you know, just in the States and trying to minister effectively from, from a biblical worldview? How do you diagnose lack of uh, connection between your own worldview and biblical worldview yourself? How, How would you go about advising someone to even do a heart check on themselves to see where their own worldview maybe is not in line with the scripture?
0: And that almost gets at Dr. Hebert's concept of critical realism. Too.
2: Yeah. So uh, if, and, and this is that I did that cognitive transformation that begins to happen, uh, if I am consciously working and thinking and trying to apply the nature of scripture to my heart and to my life, that is where I, I begin to walk through a perpetual process of uh, evaluation to where. I'm looking at an event and I stop and I think through how did I handle myself with that? What in that actually was reflective of the gospel or what was not? So one of the ways I've been thinking about this more particularly lately in a, in a project I'm working on right now uh, relating to discipleship um, in the, the fitness community that I work out in we have coaches who uh, perpetually are pointing out minor flaws that need to be addressed for maximal change in either the amount of weight we're lifting or the time in which it takes to do, uh, to do a lift or other kinds of aspects. Small changes, but they have big impact long-term. And with those small changes, they want to see a repetition of those small changes multiple times over so that we know that it's ingrained and it starts to become a part of our muscle memory. That's what we should be looking at. So as we come in as pastors, as lay leaders, as missionaries, we're coming into a culture that we know does not worship God. So what we're trying to give them is the hope of the gospel and the truth. Sometimes we can do that very clearly with with contrast. This is where this, you know, stands out starkly against uh, what what God actually claims, what the gospel actually claims. You're feeling hopeless? Let me show you where God, the creator of all of this, is going to give hope. Once a person comes to faith in Christ, though, discipleship is exactly that process of what Happening in my gym, or in with countless other people's lives through uh, some sort of coaching or, or whatever. where it's, we're making small changes and continuing to point individuals back to uh, what the 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 best expression in scripture is. So we begin to see them changing little by little, thought by thought, and bringing as Paul says, every thought captive. But what that does is it breeds in us, hopefully, a self-evaluative concept in addition to an external evaluative from our disciplers, so that discipler, disciplee um, understanding. So as someone who is discipling someone else right here, them maybe use an expletive. I'm going to, to pull them aside and say, uh, that's not good. We want to shape this. We want to make sure that we're working on the words that we say, because out of our hearts is what comes out of our mouth. So what does this reflect of us? So how can we, wrestle with this, uh, this in our hearts, this has revealed something to us about another area of our heart that isn't taken captive by the gospel. Let's, let's bring this under the Lordship of Christ as well. But I want to see that start happening individually in a person to where they're reading the pages of scripture and they're submitting themselves to it to where they, Uh, they're reading something and go, uh, Oh my goodness, that's not me. And through the power of an illumination of the Holy spirit, they are, understanding right then and there that this this must change this needs to change this must be something that's there so we're getting that cognitive and affective component beginning to roll through uh, from external but also internal frameworks and then that just cross applies no matter which um, group you're working in is it postmodern or modern or uh, post postmodern or whatever it is we're we're going to Uh, be able to still apply those same classic discipleship components to help people immerse themselves in what it means to truly follow Jesus.
0: I love the use of the weightlifting um, comparison there, um, because it makes sense. These numerous modifications that you're making on your form, your technique, things like that matter. And I I love Hebert's concept of critical realism, which is really that sweet spot that the Bible gives us where we can be objective and know that there's objective truth, but also recognize that we're limited Mm. in our perspectives and we're capable of being wrong because we're sinners. And so we're constantly holding up the mirror in our own hearts and we're willing to say that other people are wrong. Other worldviews are wrong. Um, so we're able to be critical, but we're able to be realistic mm-hmm. and objective at the same time, which is I think what we really need in this kind of age where we're, we're swinging this, we're riding this pendulum back and forth between modernism where it's, you know, science said it, so it must be true. You know, I think therefore I am. And then all the way on this other side of, you know, I'm going to identify as a pony today. Um, and Somewhere in the sweet spot in the middle, <laughs> which, is this, <laughs> which is this anchored reality that that God's word gives us and we could talk about this all day, but you're right. Uh, the, by by the, the power of the Holy Spirit and the Scripture, worldviews do change. Doctor Yates, thank you so much for going on this little journey with us mm-hmm. and talking about worldviews. How can people hear more from you, uh, engage with the work that you've done uh, and are continuing to do through Midwestern?
2: Yeah, so I would love for you to uh, and your listeners to connect with what God is doing at Midwestern, and you can find all kinds of information there at. MBTS.edu, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, mbts.edu, and you can hear all kinds of uh things there you can follow me on uh, twitter or facebook or instagram with the same handle j m y e a t s and that's usually the fastest way to find the most recent things that i'm uh, i'm publishing and i used to keep up a, a blog or website and it's my stuff gets pulled in different places and that just gets tough to keep maintaining so it's usually the the micro blogging on on social media that has <laughs> other things in it mm-hmm. so that's Probably the easiest way. And they can find your books too,
1: uh, world worldviews. Think for yourself about how you see God uh, by nav press. Uh, they can find that I'm sure on Amazon yep. McFranchising McChurch or franchising McChurch. I like that title McFranchising. Uh, makes me hungry actually <laughs> uh, feeding our obsession with easy Christianity uh, by David C. Cook. And then the time has come the rise of British missions to the Jews. 1808 to 1818. I'm sure that's probably the book that people are going to want to get first. Right. That's that's
0: by my uh, bedside. Absolutely, right now. Especially if you want to take a nap. <laughs>
2: Uh, no, I, I actually I love that work, and uh, I, I hope that people if they're interested in 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 how the how people in the nineteenth century thought about what Jewish conversion needed it to look like. It's, it's a very fascinating story of a leading organization at the nexus of evangelicalism. Hmm. All the key players are there, William Wilberforce, Queen Victoria's father. Founder of Bering's Bank. I mean, it's just it's everyone who's everyone that's in the evangelical world at that time period is is intersecting with this organization. So that's that is a historical work uh, that that is there. Uh, I have a book that's coming out next month as well, called Better Together, um, with Rayner Publishing, that uh, will be uh, talking about the cooperative program and why Baptist churches uh, mm-hmm. need to think strategically about why we operate and do the things that we do together. Mm. Um, In a a time where there's so much that's happening that that may actually tend to Separate us or pull us apart. There's actually more that we should be taking a big picture look at, especially for the cause of the advancement of the gospel. Uh, so that'll be there. I love it. Looking forward to that.
0: And when it comes out, we'll be sure to promote it here. And we'll include some of these links in the show notes. And maybe when we finish up with the recording, you can uh, talk to me about weightlifting and my issues with identifying as a pony. But thank you for joining us today, <laughs> Dr. Yates. Thanks for your time.
2: My pleasure.
0: If you want to get more great content on theology, missions, and practice, go to missionspodcast.com. And while you're there, make sure that you subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite listening platform. And please make sure that you also give us an honest review and a five-star rating. And don't forget to be sending your questions to Alex at missionspodcast.com, along with any other ideas for future episodes. And until next time, thank you for joining us.